Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Please stand as we sing together. You are not a God created
Blessed be your name in the land that is 
Father, your name truly is blessed. As we come to worship you today, it is our prayer, our desire, that you would be glorified through our songs and through the words that we speak and the words that we hear. We thank you for being present with us, and we ask that you would work in our lives. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Just a couple of things to highlight. Wednesday night, all the ministries are back on regular schedule uh, after break. Next Sunday morning, just remember we turn our clocks forward, so uh, you'll be, I guess it's, you'll be coming to the 1040 service if you don't turn your clock forward, uh, so, or something like that, I forget exactly how it goes, but uh, maybe you'll be here early, maybe you'll come to the 840 service, I'm not sure. Uh, either way, just adjust your clock and uh, hope to see you next Sunday for worship, uh, 82940 and 11. I want to invite you to join with me in the uh, Apostles' Creed. And the words will be printed on the screen for you. Let us declare our faith in the words of this historic affirmation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. God has blessed us immensely. And uh, we have the opportunity to give back to him out of the resources in which he's given us. We ask the ushers to come and to assist us as we give.
A lot of things that um, I suspect we come today burdened about, things in our community that uh, we're still wrestling with. Uh, we want to pray for families that are grieving. We add to that list Joy Blaisdell and her family as her father died last night after a lengthy illness. And uh, there are concerns of, of health. There are concerns of, of the future. There's just a lot of stuff that we're wrestling with. And and God calls us to, to come and to, to pray to him and to, to pour out our hearts before him. And so we have the opportunity to do that together now. And if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you come and, and express your prayers to God, please come and join me. contemplate all that God has done for us. As we contemplate the struggles of our lives and we we pour our prayers to God, let's take a moment of silence to express our gratitude and to offer our prayers. Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us in Christ. You know the sins of our hearts. You know the times when we hate instead of love. Times when we go our own way. The times when we act selfishly and arrogantly. Times when we hurt each other. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would not only forgive us, but set us free from the chains that bind us. Chains of hate and bitterness, the chains of addiction, the chains of worry and fear and anxiety that paralyze us. 
Father, we come today praying for each other. We think about those among us who are grieving a recent death. We pray for your comforting presence upon Joy and her family, upon the Keiths, upon the families of Greg Young and Elizabeth Wilson, and others for whom we're grieving. We pray for people who are in need of healing, for Betty Lou and Micah, for Bonnie and Louise, for Crystal and Ruth and John, for Bill and Emily and John and Clarence, and for others who are on our minds and hearts today who are burdened about their health. Father, we pray for people in Mozambique who continue the arduous and discouraging process of recovering from recent flooding. We pray for everyone in our country and around the world that have been hit by natural disasters. We pray that you would assist in the cleanup and you would bring people, bring the church as a means of helping people who are in greatest need. And we pray, Father, for the leaders of our nation as they work out a budget compromise. Let the decisions they make and the solutions they come to be focused on the best interests of people who have the most need and who have the least listened to voice. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them through Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who so graciously provides us with a model of prayer so that we know how to pray. The prayer that we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. It can be found on page 1072 of your pew Bible. Again, that's chapter, John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. 
When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore the one who handed you over to me handed me handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every fear has no. 
Father, we praise you and declare your great name. And we ask that you would give us hearts and minds that are open to your word. Do the work in us that you desire to do, to make us who you created us to be. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a world that is often crying out for justice. We have organizations that are intended, the purpose is to bring justice into situations. We hear the term justice over and over again, and, and part of the reason for that is because we live in a world of so much injustice. The haves and the have-nots continue to The gap continues to widen more and more. And people with power oppress people who don't have power. And people who have a voice get what they want. And the people who don't have a voice get nothing. We live in a world that is overrun with injustice. But this has been going on since our mother and father in the Garden of Eden sinned. It is, it is the human condition that we are more interested in ourselves than other people. And we will hurt other people to get what we want because life is about us. And it is into this world of injustice that Jesus comes. And there's no place, there is no, no picture, there is no scene where injustice is clearer than these last hours of Jesus' life. Here he stands, the only person who has ever lived who is completely innocent. And he is about to be executed. What I find so interesting about this scene that we read this morning is that on the one hand you have Pilate, who is this Roman governor, this Roman leader, pagan, no, it makes no claims about having any connection to God. Realizing that Jesus doesn't deserve punishment. And you have these religious folks who are, who, who are the, in a sense, the church of that day. 
I think know Jesus is innocent, but are trying to get him killed anyway. And here's the scary part. If you and I were to put ourselves into that story, we are the people of the church, not the pagan Roman emperor. And that ought to frighten us. Because in the midst of this scene of injustice, we have the religious people crying out, we want justice. It's just a warped image of justice. They say that Pilate has, has been trying to, to put, give Jesus back. He's been trying to say, there's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing we can do. He's innocent. And the religious leaders keep shoving him back at, at Pilate. And finally, Pilate says, all right, I will, let's see if I can appease them. And he takes Jesus out, gives him to the soldiers. They beat him. They put these thorns on his head. They mock him. And then he brings him back out, beaten, bloody, bruised. And he says to them, okay, look, is this good enough? And it's not. It's not good enough for them. They want to see him die. They want to see him suffer. Now they say it's because they have this law and he said he was son of God, so he has to be punished. But when you read through the gospel, you see that that's a facade. This isn't, this isn't a theological issue. This is an issue of power. When you read back through the gospels, you find them over and over again, jealous of Jesus for the, for the, the fact that the crowds are following him. Instead of them. They're listening to Jesus instead of them. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the people swarm to him. And they, they want to hear him. And the crowds are growing around him. And some of them run to Jerusalem. And they tell the religious leaders, the people are all following Jesus. And they gather together the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of, of the first century Jews. And they say, what are we going to do about this? Because if they keep following him, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take away everything we've been working for. Politics hasn't changed much through the years, has it? We've spent too much time and energy getting power, getting influence, getting clout, gaining everything that we have. We're not letting this, this rabbi from Nowheresville take it away from us. And John says at that moment, they began to plot how they're going to kill Jesus. And now all of that has come to the surface here in front of Pilate's palace. And when Pilate says, he hasn't done anything wrong, how about I let him go? They say, no, crucify him. And how often do you and I find ourselves calling for people to get what we believe they deserve. In a sense, we cry out, crucify them. They're our enemy. We disagree with them. We have a different view of social issues. We have a different view of life. And our response is, crucify them. We're going to take them out. We're going to defeat them. We're going to grind them into the ground so that everyone knows we're right and they're wrong. And we call that justice, just like they do. 
Now, there is a place for standing up for what's right. In fact, no one should be standing up for what's right more than God's people because God is concerned about what's right. We ought to be that voice. In fact, when you read through the Old Testament, you find often talking about justice, but it's a different picture of justice than we tend to think of. We tend to think of justice as they're going to get what they deserve. But in the Old Testament, justice is about giving people who don't have a voice a voice. It's about God's prophets coming and saying, look, you guys got to change how you live. You've got to treat the poor with dignity. You have to stop taking advantage of people who are vulnerable. You need to know that if things don't change, God is going to do something serious. And justice is about helping people in need, helping people who can't help themselves, not making sure everyone knows that we're right. The truth of the matter is, the church has been culpable for injustice through the centuries. In our attempts at being just and our attempts at making sure everyone understands the truth, we have actually created scenarios of injustice. You think back to the first people that came to this country. They came here from from Europe. They came here in order to have religious freedom. And it isn't very long at all before they are persecuting people who disagree with them religiously. And you scratch your head and say, how could that be? Because it's about us. I've thought for a long time, I wonder how different our country would be if the church from day one had stood up against slavery. How different would race relations be in this country if right from the beginning the church had stood up and said, that is abhorrent, that is wrong, and we will fight it. How different would people view the church if if when cases of abuse within the church were known, that instead of covering up and sweeping them under the rug, we would have taken responsibility and been accountable. And I know why we don't do those things. We have all kinds of reasons why we don't do them. You think back to slavery. Well, we don't, People didn't take a church didn't take a stand against slavery in a lot of places because the richest people in the church were slave owners. And because we, you know, people would say, well, they treat their slaves better than anybody else. They own slaves. You can't reconcile that. And I know why the church has a tendency to cover up abuse. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic church. This is all of us, all churches, across denominations, all of us, because it infiltrates everybody. We have this image of the bigger vision of the church and, and, and our image and, and how we're trying to, to make a difference in the world. And if this stuff comes out, it's just going to undermine that big picture, that vision that we have from God. Because we're really more interested about the big picture. We're really more interested about protecting the institution than we are about protecting people. And we need to repent of that. 
And then we wonder, how come people are, feel suspect, thinks, uh, have suspicions about the church? How come people don't trust the church? That's why. The dilemma we have is how do we, how do we live out kingdom justice as God's people? How do we balance standing up for what's right and yet not looking like the religious leaders who cry for Jesus' crucifixion? How do we live in that tension? How do we balance that? I'm convinced the answer is the cross. We will only understand genuine kingdom justice when the cross is in the middle of our understanding of it. Because the minute you you think of justice around the cross, everything changes. Because now, justice is not what I want. Justice is not getting what I want. Justice is not making sure that my truth is the truth. It's about Jesus. And it begins to change and shape our attitude about how we view justice and injustice. And when the cross is in the middle of this, instead of, instead of trying to prove that we're right, we do what's right. Instead of trying to, to nail people to the cross in order to appease us, we take up our cross so that people know they're loved and cared for and might be reconciled with God. If we're going to engage in kingdom justice, something in us has to want for other people God's mercy more than God's vengeance. And that's hard for us because we tend to want vengeance. But that's because we have forgotten that we are here only because of God's mercy. So we want to say, God, I hope you give them what they deserve. That's a really dangerous way to live. Because if God starts giving everybody what we deserve, we're in big trouble. It is the cross that brings mercy to us in spite of what we deserve. And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that God has been merciful to us. And it's that mercy that gives us any means of living right and of knowing peace and of having an understanding of what's right and wrong in the first place. And I'm convinced that that a spirit of vengeance in us is going to continue to create in us a heart that looks like the religious leaders. Because you cannot be You cannot thirst for vengeance and still be people who are gentle and kind and loving and merciful. You just can't do it. If our our desire is vengeance, we will become people who are bitter and filled with hate. And we will create pain in the world, not comfort. But as we begin to think about mercy, desiring mercy, that will just continue to multiply and it will allow God to change us into people who love 
when we could very easily hate. People who get involved when we could easily be apathetic. People who care about justice with the spirit of gentleness and faithfulness instead of a spirit of vengeance. I mean, Scripture's clear. God says, vengeance is mine, not yours. What he calls us to be is people who stand up for truth in a spirit of mercy. And let's say that, that they're right. Let's say that just for argument's sake, let's say that Jesus was blast, being blasphemous. That Jesus did deserve what they said he deserved. Kingdom justice would, would not desire that, but it would pain us to the depth of our being that someone might need to face the judgment of God instead of celebrating it. Instead of responding, well, I'm glad they got theirs. We weep and we mourn because they got theirs. It's really, we're talking about really just the spirit of Christ. As Jesus hangs on the cross, placed there by, the, by, by people who are mocking him, by the, by the people who are supposed to be representing God, Jesus hangs on the cross. His response is not, Father, give them what they deserve. His response is, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Merciful justice is costly and it's painful and it goes against the grain. It's counterintuitive to how we tend to live our lives. But that's the cross. And that's why when Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he says, Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, gave that up in order to take on human flesh and eventually surrender himself to death, even death on a cross. Kingdom justice is always in the context of mercy. Truth in the context of mercy. And I know we, we in our minds are thinking, yeah, but this is important and we need to win. But we're not called to win, we're called to love. And the truth of the matter is, if we love and we lose, we win. And if we don't love and we win, we lose. Because Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, if I can do all these great things, I can even sacrifice my own life. If I don't love, it's nothing. Nothing. Kingdom justice is always going to cost us. Because it's going to mean the same spirit, the same attitude, the same perspective as Jesus who goes to the cross so that we might experience God's 
mercy. Great St. Thomas the Kempis said that Jesus now has many people who love his heavenly kingdom, but very few who are willing to bear his cross. You and I are called to bear his cross. And that's how we will make a difference in the world because it's the cross that sets us apart. It is the cross that distinguishes his kingdom justice from everything else. And that's why we come to this table today. At this table, we encounter God's mercy poured out upon us and we give thanks. And at this table, we are asking God to fill us with his spirit that we might be agents of his mercy as we go out and try to bring a spirit of justice in a world of injustice. At this table, this table is here because of the cross. It is here that we find true justice, kingdom justice that is rooted in the mercy and the grace of our loving Father. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your mercy to us that we do not deserve. And we pray that you will help us to be people who are so filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for your mercy in our lives that even in our work for justice, it is in a spirit of mercy and grace. Father, we pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup which we are about to partake this morning. Let it be food for our souls. Let it inspire us to the deeper things of your Holy Spirit. Giving thanks through Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. And again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This morning, as you're released by Rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup and eat it. Then you can return to your seat by the outside aisle. And the altar rail is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. I'd like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. That simply means that you don't have to be a member of this church. Maybe the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with a desire in your heart 
for the grace of God in your life and a desire for God to give you grace to others, to be an agent of God's mercy. Come, receive these gifts from our loving Father.
please stand as we sing. How firm a foundation you sing of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.